Um, as we continue through our series of Luke, we are coming towards the end, and there's this uh, passage at the very end of Luke in Luke chapter 19 that is uh, traditionally called or very popularly known as the cleansing of the temple. It's the f- it's like one of those times where Jesus gets angry and he goes in and starts throwing things. And like whenever you feel angry, it's like I'm using that passage to justify my anger right now. See, Jesus did it. And I remember if you uh, read in the gospel according to John, there's this portion at the very in- beginning where Jesus actually goes and fashions a rope. I remember reading that a long time ago. I thought he just flew off the handle. No, he actually took the time to fashion a rope to go into the temple to up, up, uh, throw it up all, all over the place. So anyway, that's the passage we're going to look at today. I'm going to share a message, some thoughts and reflections entitled, This is my house. This is not your house. Uh, one of the things that Danielle has taught me uh, in parenting uh, is that, uh, I don't know if you know this, kids uh, like to fight over things. There's uh, territorialism. Uh, and I know we grow out of this, right? Once we hit 13, 14, we no longer fight over things, possessions, right? You know, we're, we're done with that. But kids, young ones, fight over possessing things and owning things. And um, frequently when this happens, whenever there's play dates and stuff like that, Danielle has taught me a phrase that I've really very much appreciated that I've come to uh, believe is one of the deepest theological principles that you can ever uh, ever grab onto, which, which is this. She goes to these children who's fighting over a bear or a sheep or whatever it is, who are constantly saying, this is mine. No, this is mine. No, this is mine. No, this is mine. Danielle reaches in, grabs whatever item is, and says, no, it's mine. And I by the way, because it's mine, have now decided to share it with both of you. So both of you are actually wrong. It's not yours to have. It is mine that I have given to you to partake within, to partake, be a part of, right? So this, my friends, is all you need to know. Let's close in a word of prayer, have communion, and let's leave. This is all you need to know. This is my house. This is not yours. This is not somebody else. It's, this is mine. And should we ever have any benefit from it? Or should we understand that there's wonderful things that I appreciate or, or I can associate my identity with? What happens is we sometimes have a tendency to forget this actually isn't ours, never has been ours. It's always belonged to someone else. So we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 19 in that particular passage because what Jesus does is refers to two other passages that are going to be extremely important for what kind of meaning we need to take away from the fact that this is not our house, but God's house. University of California, Los Angeles has done some amazing 3D urban development projects. This is actually some city, uh, some steps in the old city of Jerusalem that are heading up towards the Temple Mount. So you can kind of get a sense and a feel. Sometimes when you hear the word temple, you might think of some, you know, grandiose building. Part of what I sometimes forget myself, this thing is huge. There's lots of activity. There's amazing commerce going on. There's lots of people uh, going back and forth. There's amazing things that are happening at this location. You can kind of see the scale. This is just one corner, by the way, of an incredibly huge platform. This, by the way, isn't even the temple. We're not looking at the temple. This is just the platform on top of which the temple sits. For, for those of you who know, the Statue of Liberty is actually smaller than the platform upon which the Statue of Liberty stands. The whole point is to elevate it. Very similar here. 
that the structure and the foundation of the temple mount, the platform, the thing, the stage, is huge. And then we'll get to where the temple is, I think, in just a few months. There it is. So that's the actual temple. But you can see the huge porticos, open air, etc. You can kind of see the scale. And so when Jesus walks into this place or is heading towards the temple... There, there's just a mass of people during these kinds of holidays and celebrations, and it's a huge, developed place. Lots of significance, and we could spend the rest of our lives studying about each particular building and each particular tower and what that means, etc. In Luke chapter 19, it, re- it reads, As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized... On this day, the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. I love this phrase because there is a way for peace to happen. By the way, that's what we're all looking for even now in our pandemic season. We're looking... (laughs) When is shalom going to happen? Because we get another news. It's like Delta, Lambda, Mu, Nu. It's like we're just going to run right down the Greek alphabet of all these various variants, right? We're finally going to get to, you know, Omega. It's like, okay, we've covered Alpha and Omega. We've gone all the way to the end. What is ultimately going to bring us peace? And Jesus says here, if you had only known, then these other things, what this stuff is, enemies setting up ramparts around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. That would not have happened. What is he talking about? This is an ancient, (laughs) this is not an ancient, this is a model of an ancient uh, machine that people would build when they are taking siege of a particular city. Cities had walls. The only way to get through that is to build machines such as this. We have those in Rome, we have those in Israel, we have those all over the place of the ancient world. So when Jesus talks about ramparts, what he's talking about is this thing right here. This is an old frieze from a city in southern Israel called Lachish. And there's a wall there that you can see. And if you look closely, I know it's a little fuzzy on the screen, you can see that there's a machine going up that particular ramp. And the general idea is that the wall that is at the top of the hill needs to be blown away needs to be busted through and the only way to do that is to build a piece of machinery to get up in there jesus is actually referring to an historical event that happened much later a couple years after jesus and he's essentially prophetically telling the people this is ultimately what's going to happen has happened and will continue to happen They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. This is actually an image from 70 AD of when Rome came into Jerusalem, knocked all the stones down. You can see just the pile of rubble, and you can see how huge those stones are too. They're just massive, and they're coming from 10, 20 stories high, falling to the ground. Again, this is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So when Jesus is talking about all of these military kinds of language, he's referring to actual events that are happening that the people would have understood and known. He's not just talking metaphorically that enemies are going to surround us and think bad things are going to happen to our buildings. He's talking very physically and tangibly about things that are uh, happening there. One of the backdrops to much of Jesus's teaching uh, in passages such as this is the word exile. 
The word exile is a phrase that means essentially, this is my summation, you're basically kicked out of your home. And the reason why this talk about enemies is so important is for those of you who've studied just a little bit, you know that one major theme throughout the Old Testament passages is that Israel is trying to be the nation that God has called them to be. But there's all these other big nations that keep coming in and taking them out of the land. Syria, Babylon, Persia, ultimately Greece and Rome, etc. And they kick them out of their home and they're no longer home. Part of the backdrop of Jesus' teachings is that these people recognize what it's like to have other people come in, take them out, kick them out, and to kick them out of what they would call home. A place where you belong. A place where you know that you are supposed to be. And when Jesus is referring to these events, he's essentially referring to that kind of idea— I'm not home. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. This is not where life is supposed to happen. When you got the word that you could no longer go to work, go to school, see anybody that you were supposed to mask, that you were supposed to shelter in place, etc., in many ways, even though we may, for some of us, may not have actually physically left a location, we were no longer at home. We could not do or be fully and completely who we were designed, intended, created, had worked to be. Something had happened. And exile is this word to mean we're no longer at home. We're no longer where we want to be, where we belong. The ultimate question is, why? Why does that happen? What causes exile? Now, you could simply say virus, but as you know, there's plenty of people that spiritualize or appeal to other kinds of reasonings such as sin, such as irresponsibility. You could blame a particular people group, etc. You've heard all of these excuses. Whenever natural disasters happen, whenever viruses happen, whenever any of this stuff happens, there's usually some sort of scapegoat or some sort of rationale that we put behind the why. Well, is that a practice that only we do or have people been doing this for a long time? People have been doing this for a long time. There's always some sort of reason, some sort of rationale behind why this is happening. What I think Jesus is doing in this passage is giving a little bit of an insight into the why, but what he decides or what he teaches is the why, of course, is completely radically different from what we would expect what that why is. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You want to know why? Do you want to know why? Here's the summation of the why. Why is there destruction? Why is there exile? Why are you not at home? Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? Even though you may be physically at the temple, at the place of worship, why? What ultimately is going on here? Two main passages here that he refers to. My house shall be a house of prayer. That's what we're supposed to be. But you have done something very different. You've turned it into a den of robbers. That's ultimately the sum summative statement that Jesus gives here 
as to why things are not the way they're supposed to. Why do we not have shalom? Why are we not at home? Why are we not ultimately at peace? Especially when we're at the temple, when we're gathered in a sacred and special place, here's why. Now, to understand what these phrases mean, house of prayer, den of robbers, you have to go back to the original context. You have to go back to the passages of which Jesus is referring. The first phrase, my house shall be a house of prayer, is a reference to Isaiah 56, which our beautiful children read for us. And the second phrase comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's dig into those passages and tease out what is Jesus referring to here that was so central to those passages of what may have been going on during Jesus's time that may inform us of how we can think about why we're not at home sometimes. Isaiah chapter 56. This is the same passage that these beautiful children read. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice. Do what is right. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. By the way, my salvation, for those of you who want to get a little geeky about this, is actually the word my Yeshua. If you know that phrase, my Yeshua, Yeshua is actually the Hebrew name for Jesus. So in some ways, soon my Jesus will come. There may be a play on words there and a reference that happens all the time. It's my Jesus, my Jesus, my salvation. Also, what is right in my deliverance is essentially righteousness. Do what is right. Okay, question. What is right? What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to have deliverance? What is he referring to? Give me some more specific elements. He goes on later on in the next verse. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Okay, we're starting to get clearer now. You want peace? Do what is right. What is right? Keep the Sabbath. And what's the second thing? Keep the Sabbath and don't do any evil. No. No on the evil. Sabbath, for those of you who remember, come from a long tradition all the way back to creation where God creates works for six days and Sabbaths on day seven. He rests, he ceases, he stops. There's an implication there that what we are to do one day a week is to recognize we are not God. And even though we're in Silicon Valley and the more work, the more return, more ROI, the more stock value, etc., there is a value. There is a stated clear value of honoring the Sabbath to recognize we are not the ones who do that creating is ultimately God who does the creating. And over time, this gathering that we do every single week that is so central to our practice and our identity is supposed to be sacralized. It's supposed to be sacred. It's supposed to be holy. This is why you're supposed to put your phones away and not think about work and not be worried by whatever is coming next in the schedule. In this moment, in this time, something sacred and holy happens when we gather, which is what I loved so much about what Junior was leading us in in this time. This time and this space is to be holy, set apart, and different. We remind ourselves who we are, and we remind ourselves who we are not. We are not God. We are mere mortals, and we recognize that everything ultimately is a gift. So, what does it mean to not do evil? Keep the Sabbath, don't do evil. 
Next verse. Do not let the foreigner joined to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. By the way, I will not explain eunuch to all the kids. That's your job, parents. You're welcome. What ultimately is going on here? This is about foreigners and eunuchs. I thought there was supposed to be something sacred about the gathering. We're supposed to protect this, yes? For thus says to the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose things that please me and hold fast my covenant. So, so somebody who doesn't fit the normal social bodily norms, somebody who's outside of that standard, somebody who Jesus later references is either born this way or made this way, somebody who's somewhat on the outside comes in and starts to honor God in the Sabbath in the same way. God says, I'm going to give in my house and within my walls to those people, to the eunuchs and the foreigners, a monument and a name. Look at this, better than sons or daughters. I mean, wait, wait a second. You're somebody who's outside a foreigner, somebody who does not fit the norm that we have established as the norm, somebody who we have either designated or made to be lesser than in a different class has now come in and you're going to give them a monument and a name better than your own flesh and blood, sons and daughters? Yes. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Is there a play on words there? You just got that, didn't you, Eric? Yes. Yeah. Is there? Absolutely. There's a play on words. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants all all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. I thought not doing evil meant not doing illicit activities. I thought not doing evil was not murdering or not breaking all the Ten Commandments. I thought not doing evil was to make sure that I was, you know, good and steady and not getting in trouble with the law. In this passage, not doing evil, keeping the Sabbath, honoring God, this is my paraphrase, don't let anybody, a foreigner or an alien, be separate from you, distinct from you. Do not let anyone ever be a second-class citizen in your midst. But isn't evil the things that I, I, I do that, like, break a commandment or a rule or a law? Maybe. But in this passage, it's how you treat somebody who some communities have designated do not belong a foreigner is somebody who does not fit your ethnic makeup, somebody who speaks a different language, somebody who comes from a different country, somebody who does not have the customs or cultures that you do. Are they welcome? Do they fit? Have they been given a monument and a name better than sons or daughters? A eunuch is somebody who does not fit the cultural or bodily norm, somebody who is outside of what is supposed to be quote-unquote holy or perfect or the way that your body was intended to be. Somebody who's outside of that. Do not let them ever be a second-class citizen 
everlasting monument, a memorial. That's what God is going to give to them. In other words, the absence of evil, according to this passage, is the presence of radical welcome. We might say radical inclusion. We might say, in the words of Father Gregory Boyle, radical kinship. That, according to Isaiah 56, is the absence of evil. If you had only known that my house, God says, is to be a house of prayer for all people, and you don't ever shut anybody out according to what you think the standards or the parameters are, and don't do that, and recognize that kinship and welcome and inclusion is the opposite of the evil. And what these people, and we have evidence of this, what these people were doing was creating those boundaries, those barriers. They could be moralistic barriers. They could be body barriers. They could be gender barriers. They could be all sorts of parameters that we say, these are the people that are in, and these are the people that are out. And Jesus says, my house, this is not your house. This is my house. Give me that stuffed toy. This is my house. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That's the Isaiah. Keep the Sabbath. Avoid evil. And it basically begs the question, who are we excluding? Who do we include? Who? Who have we pushed out? We've talked about this theme actually multiple times over the last couple of weeks. I've been very, very grateful for the messages that many have given. Den of robbers, very quickly. For if you truly, Jeremiah chapter 7, for if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly, there's that theme again, with another. If you do not oppress alien, orphan, widow, shed innocent blood in this place. Nobody's shed innocent blood in our gatherings yet. Hopefully not. Maybe a couple scratches on the playground. And if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods? There's that theme again, going after something else you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we're safe. Yeah, we're doing, we're good. I made it to the temple. I made it to spark. I'm really good. Only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. Den of robbers in Jeremiah is a reference to injustice. Act justly. Do not leave out the widow and the orphan. And the key theme that we saw here are, why are you pursuing false gods? Why are you pursuing Baal and those other teachings, those other words that you're bringing into this place, into this sacred space? The question that is begged in the Jeremiah reference is, what are we including? What have you brought into this place that doesn't belong here? Baal is a foreign god. Those teachings are not the teachings of the Lord. And yet you've brought them here and thinking that you are safe. So let's put all this together. Jesus enters into the temple. He begins to drive out those who are selling things. 
And he quotes these two passages, Jeremiah 7, Isaiah 56. My house will be a house of prayer. That is a question of who do you exclude and who do you include? But you, my friends, have made it a den of robbers, which is ultimately the question, what have you actually brought into this place that does not belong here? And these two questions are my proposition and my proposal for all of you and all of us, my friends. Who is it that we exclude? And what is it that we have included? This is where it gets really hard and really personal. When Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer, there is a whole list of category, categories that religious people like to prop up as people who are not included. You can come up with all sorts of different parameters, religious, ideological, cultural, biological, you just name it. There is a host and a list of things that religious communities prop up as to people who do not quite belong. They are foreigners. They are eunuchs. They are people who are outside whatever norm might happen to be established or declared in this place. If only you had known what would bring you peace, Jesus says. What brings you peace? What brings you wholeness and shalom? The answer to this question, who do you exclude, is no one. There is... There is nobody that is excluded. There is not one single person. Pastor Mark talked about this last week. There's not a single person that is excluded from God's house. My house. This is not your house. You do not get to decide. Here are the people who are in and here are the people who are out. This is not your house. Give me back my toy. This is my house. And my house is a house of prayer for all nations. The answer to the question of who do we exclude, the answer is no one. It's kind of that simple. Okay, then what about this question? What do we include? What are the things that we have slowly, subtly, subconsciously, intentionally, unintentionally brought into this sacred space that does not belong here? There are multiple ways in which people try to identify themselves within the context of religious communities as well. We happen to be liberal. We happen to be progressive. We happen to be conservative. We happen to be this kind of political party versus that political party. We happen to lean in this direction or that direction. And then, here's the subtlety, we can then begin to filter our theology not through what the teachings of Jesus are, but through our own political lens. I'm not saying this because I think this. I'm saying this because we know this. Question any study. Barna, Pew Research, etc. Most people do not get their identity. Most religious people who claim to be Christians do not get their identities and their moral frameworks and their political ideas from their religious identity, but from their political identity. What have we brought in to the church that is not supposed to be here? What have we included to make it a den of robbers? What have we brought in? That is the question. And the struggle and the challenge, and I know this will be controversial, that I hope sparks some additional conversation, the answer to that is supposed to be nothing. We don't bring in other philosophies. We don't bring in other foundations, other kinds of ideas. That doesn't mean we don't think about those tools and we're not thinking critically. It doesn't mean that. It means those are not 
the foundation. Those are not the things that we use to leverage who we are and how we live and how we practice. Who do we exclude? What do we include? And ultimately, we have to ask those questions because this is not our house. This space that we have here, this church that we so desperately love, this community that you have all created and sustained does not ultimately belong to us. It is not our house. It is God's house. And so we are attempting to live the way of Jesus because it's his house. And we're trying to figure out how do we make sure that we live in the way that Jesus has designed and tended, created, encouraged, taught us to live. And my encouragement, my proposition for us today is that when he quotes Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, it's ultimately the question, who do we, in, who do we exclude? Nobody. We don't exclude anybody. Anybody and everybody. Welcome. You are here. You belong. And you will be given a monument and a name better than those of us who grew up in the church, who were baptized in the church, who have been here all along, whatever sons and daughters might mean. If you've been... And listen, this is one of the things that just breaks my heart continually that we know constantly in our community are people who walk through these doors who said my old church or my previous religious institution, whatever, however you want to say it, I don't know if I belong there anymore. And I make no judgment upon whatever decisions other people make. I'm just simply saying that it seems like Jesus is saying this is not your house. You do not get to decide who gets to belong and who doesn't get to belong. Everybody. And... Let us also be careful and cautious and thoughtful as to what we bring in. If you call this place liberal or progressive, I'm questioning, have we got this right? If you call this place conservative or evangelical, I'm not quite sure. I mean, are those the right terms? Because I'm not really interested in bringing additional philosophies in. I'm not really interested in trying to identify with whatever happens to be an understood or agreeable set of parameters or virtues that happen to be out. I'm really not interested in that. I'm really interested in who Jesus is and how we can live that way. And try not, try not to bring anything else in that does not belong here. That's our hope. Why? Because it's not our house. It's God's house. It's ultimately God's house. So, my friends... As we have done every single week when we take communion, this is a symbol and a representation of the table where everybody is welcome, no matter where you've come from, no matter what background. And when we say at the very end that all are welcome, this is what we're referring to, the teachings of Jesus, where all, truly all, are actually welcome. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for me, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to sing another song together. And as we do, we're going to invite you to come and participate in the table. And truly, all are welcome.